Last week was July 3rd, which meant Monday was the 4th, and if you're like me, um, certain holidays produce certain um, viewing of the internet and videos, and one was shared with me this week of a family who were sitting down to watch some fireworks from their front yard. You know, the, the adult men, the responsible guys were going to light off some firecrackers, family was spread out on the lawn, there was tables of food, little kids were playing in the grass, and the Roman candle must have tipped over and it starts shooting at people. Moms run and grab the kids and pull them out of the way, and what you didn't see on the video is that one of the fireballs went to this stash that was there for later use, right underneath a car, and then it all broke out like just explosions everywhere. It was incredibly insane amount of fireworks that they had in one place. And then to see it all blowing up underneath this car and in front of this house, people were running for their lives. And what I thought was really funny about it, I hope everybody was safe. This is part of your twisted pastor's nature. What I thought was really hilarious was this was all recorded by a Simply Safe camera. <laughs> So no doubt, having had that experience, they were going to rethink that for next year, right? So this morning, we kind of find ourselves, as we've been working through the letters of First and Second Thessalonians, we find ourselves at the end of chapter 2 in Second Thessalonians. So Second Thessalonians chapter 2, I'd invite you to turn there. We're going to look this morning at verses 13 through 17. You'll see it's on page 989 in uh, the pew Bibles or the chair Bibles, which if you don't have a Bible and you would like one, just take that as a gift. You're not stealing from the church. Uh, we want to give you that as a gift, your time here at South Canyon. But I feel like in many ways, uh, we started this chapter last week with the intention of working through it all and didn't get there. And so it's kind of like a real hinge moment here at verses 13 through 17 that really require a good grasp of the first 12 verses. I'm not going to re-preach it. Don't worry about that. But what we saw in these verses in chapter 2 is that Paul is speaking to a group of Christians, in case you haven't been here and you're visiting with us this morning. This is a church he started, and this church, from its very beginning days, has been harassed by the community in which it gathers the city in which these Christians live. They've been boycotted. They've been persecuted. They've been canceled. They've been harassed. And Paul is writing back to these people. The persecution is so intense, he can't enter the city without risk of his life. He's been banned from it by its rulers, as we saw in Acts 17. And now he's writing back to them <clears throat> because they have real concerns over the level of persecution they're enduring. Paul had taught them that Christ was going to come and there would be a great season of suffering by the church. And so they're wondering if that season has not already come. And Paul has to set things straight for them. But this chapter we find ourselves in was a very sad and sobering. Because as we saw in the first 12 verses, there is a real clear teaching here that those who deny the gospel and God's truth will then be further deluded by the tool of Satan, this man of lawlessness, also known as the son of destruction, 
And then when Jesus does return, he will destroy all of his enemies. This week, we finish the passage, and we see that Paul pivots from God's enemies in the first 12 verses, and he leans into God's people in verses 13 through 17 with words of comfort. And in fact, the whole point of this letter is that he wants the church to praise the Lord for their salvation, a salvation which empowers us to stand firm and hold fast to the teaching until the Lord returns. So this morning, that's the big idea. We're going to look at the results of God's salvation here in verses 13 through 17. So please follow along in your copy of the Scriptures as I read God's Word. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word and may He write its truths upon our hearts. Lord, we simply ask this morning that You would do that. That You would bring eternal comfort and good hope to those who don't know you. That you would break through the delusions of the enemy, the lies of this world, and that you in your spirit would show the sweetness of your grace to one who is yet to be saved. And for those of us are, Lord, that you would strengthen your church. No matter what election results come, no matter what economic developments occur, God, we as your people need to be strengthened by your truth. And we need to stand firm and hold fast to it by your power. Without you, Christ, we have nothing. We are nothing. And so we confess that and we plead that you would build us today through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we see in verses 13 and 14, Paul, kind of like a door, swings on hinges. He shifts from those who will suffer judgment as a result of rejecting the truth. You see that clearly in verses 10, 11, and 12. Now he switches over to thanking God for saving and sanctifying some. So God is not going to destroy everyone. He will destroy those who reject him and the gospel that he has brought to them. But he is also saving people through the preaching of that gospel. And we see that in verses 13 and 14. And Paul says, I thank God for these things. These truths that you have been regenerated, that you've been born again, that God chose you. You are the very beginnings of what God is doing in all of this world. How much more so today as we sit here so many thousands of years later that God, even if we are young in the faith, you are again a firstfruits of what God is intending to do in this world through the preaching of the gospel. 
So we gather together locally as a body each Sunday for this foolishness of preaching. To hear God's word which has made his people and we are taught it and we think about it and we wrestle with it and the spirit in us agrees with it. Yes, this is truly God's word. And then we walk by faith in the grace that the Lord himself gives us. Now, Paul speaks of God choosing, and this is an element where we see in verse 13 and 14 that is perplexed Christians. The doctrine of election is a good doctrine, but it's a difficult one. It's a doctrine that stretches our mind, but it ought to greatly comfort our hearts, and here's why. It's entirely consistent with our experience. You see, I've never been good enough to earn God's favor. And so if I've received God's favor, it's a result of His grace, not my goodness. Therefore, I can be comforted that whether I live or die, I can please God because it's His grace that works within me that brings Him glory. I mean, it all depends on Him, and that really ought to comfort us. Think of it this way. We know the truth. Jesus says this in John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. This isn't an element of pride. Think about it. Where did God find us? You go back to the Old Testament prophets. He's speaking to Israel and Jerusalem or Judah, the northern and southern nations. And he's reminding them that he found them naked and bloody in a wilderness. He bought them. He washed them. He cleansed them. He anointed them. He adorned them with ornaments and gold and jewels. He gave them fine clothing. And then they turned and ran from Him and went to other gods to worship them. That's human nature. So none of us have a means of boasting that we are Christians. The doctrine of election oftentimes has been marked with a a sense of Um, superiority, of unlovingness, of uncaringness, of ingratitude perhaps, aloofness. But seriously, to understand what God has done uh, ought to make all of us humble and grateful. We only have to reflect on our lives before our salvation to see how willful and weak we really are. Those who love God's truth and are saved, will not experience God's judgment. That's the whole point of Paul's pivot here. We see in the first 12 verses that there will be great judgment, there will be great rebellion, and then the man of lawlessness will be revealed, and he will delude people into greater lies and worshiping him as the God of all creation. And yet, the reality is, Paul says when they are judged for their rejection of the truth, that God will also simultaneously save people. Why is that? Why is it that God will save some and condemn others? Simply because God loves us. We've sang about it this morning. I I can't imagine picking three better songs to tie into this passage than what we've already sung together as a church. God chose us to be saved through the Spirit's sanctification and faith in the truth. 
Romans 5.9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. See, for the Christian, there is a confidence that Jesus paid it all, and therefore God's wrath has been poured out on Him, and we will be spared from it, not because we deserve it, but in fact because God chose to save us. We understand God's message. What does Paul say? God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. God is sanctifying you through His Spirit and belief in the truth. And how did they hear about this truth? How did they come to know the Gospel and to see the Spirit transform them and save them? Look at what he says in verse 14. Through the preaching of the Gospel. I mean, every Sunday, it's not the same thing when you come to church. It shouldn't be. It's not just that Jesus loves you, this I know, because the Bible told me so. I mean, that's the essence of the Gospel. But that's only a part of the Gospel. The other part of the Gospel is there's this holy God who created all things, and then His pinnacle of creation, the very cherry on the top, as it were, mankind, rebelled against Him because they were led away by their desires. And then in this rebellious state, God is now wrathful against his, those image bearers. They reject him as their king. They choose to make themselves king. And this is a conundrum because there will be a day of an accountability. And then God says that day will be a day that will result in judgment unless you confess faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. We repeat that message week in, week out. Not in that formula, but for the purpose of understanding that the gospel is really the foundation of our faith. We understand it. It's a message that reveals a holy God to sinful people. It's a message that calls sinners to embrace God's message of forgiveness, reconciliation through His righteous Son, Jesus. So the gospel is a call to repentance and faith, to recognize God's authority to judge his creation and our sinfulness, to see the only hope for life is to cast oneself on God's mercy, and to accept his promise of salvation through the provision of Jesus and no other way. And Paul says the purpose of this, look at verse 14, here's the purpose of of why He gives thanks for the salvation that God has brought to these people, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What God wants to do in each and every one of your lives, He wants to make you just like His Son. You go back through the Gospels and you see how patient Jesus was. Don't we need patience? You see how righteous Jesus was. Don't we need more righteousness? Don't we need more holiness? Don't we need more love to show more love and mercy? Don't we need more wisdom? I mean, is there anything that Jesus has that we don't need? And the answer is no. And so what Paul is saying is the ultimate end of our salvation isn't just a ticket that gets us into the experience of heaven 
you know, whether it's an annual pass or whatever you want to use the image, it is so that we will look like Jesus. We will reflect the Father. We will be as God intended us to be. And that is a glory that we are promised through God Himself. Now, Paul comes to verse 15 and he says, here's the instruction. I want you to, guys to rejoice and understand that in contrast to those who rejected God's truth and will be condemned, God has saved you and He is sanctifying you. I am rejoicing over this and so should you. But now he says and urges them with a command to stand firm and hold fast to the teaching in verse 15. Once again, he uses a contrast. In verse 2 of the chapter, Paul recognized that this church had been rattled, greatly upset and distressed by believing lies. Now in verse 15, he instructs them, stand firm, hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. And notice what he says, either by spoken word, going back a few months to when Paul and his missionary team were there, or by letters, he says. Believe the truth that we have taught you. Don't let yourself be caught and led astray by these false teachers. We spent nearly all of last Sunday unpacking the pressures this church was facing and the pressures that the church will one day face, perhaps even in our day. And there's no question why God's people need to resolve to stand firmly on His Word. There's no question. You can look around the world around us today. We don't have to put ourselves back in first century A.D., nor do we have to put ourselves far in the future. Look at the pressures the church is facing right now. There is a real need and a relevant need. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 4.1, that persecution against the church will be an occasion for some to abandon the faith. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 24, verse 11, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Why does a shooter take advantage of a 4th of July parade? Because the love of human hearts is growing cold. I mean, this is what sin does. It deadens us to the suffering of others. It deadens us to the sanctity of life. It kills a concern for our fellow man. It's why people can watch somebody else harm someone and not invest themselves in rescuing and delivering that person. We, we become a society that's been saturated by looking through a glass and being detached from the evils and the suffering But Paul says, or Jesus says in Matthew 24, the one who endures to the end will be saved. I think Paul understood what Jesus said there in Matthew 24, and it's his hope and prayer that this church will not fall away. Now, the question is, how is it that any of us can stand firm and hold fast to the teaching? Like, what is it that we need to know, you know, the guidebook to Christianity Christianity for dummies. Whatever, is there a book that we need 
a, a class that we can offer here as, as pastors and elders that will guarantee every single one of us will endure till the end. Well, I think we take what Paul has said here in this chapter and we apply it to answer the question, how is it that we do this? Well, we hear the gospel, we receive it, and we see it change us. Okay, so you're there. Now we understand that God gives us the power to stand firm against the lies and temptations. God gives us the power to hold fast to His teaching. Remember Paul's prayer in chapter 1 of this second letter. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what Paul has already told them is the secret to unlocking the how question. How is it that any of us can do this incredible thing given such hard circumstances? And again, we can't neglect to remember that these believers were suffering for the faith. So what will allow them to endure persecution, maybe even the risk of losing their own lives? Is it just this stubborn nature? Is it a willpower? No. Paul says that God has empowered us to do this. Because the need is so great, every believer has the responsibility to stand firm and hold fast to the teaching found in Scripture. So here's the secret. You know God's Word. You love its truth, and you put your trust in it. The element of every good lie is an element of truth, right? That's the hook. Every good lie has a seed of truth in it. And so we need to know the truth, and we need to trust in it. We need to have godly elders and leaders within the church. We as people have to take a vested interest in our own godliness and pursuit of it so that we are not caught and led astray by every wind of doctrine, every new teaching. Resist everything that tempts you to move from God's Word. And then finally, Paul says in this prayer, he prays a prayer of blessing and confidence that the Lord Himself is able to do this. We are insufficient. Looking at verses 16 and 17, Paul says first he speaks of his confidence in God's preserving grace. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace... Paul has absolute confidence that God can preserve his people. Christians who suffer for the faith may lose their lives. They may lose their jobs. They may be driven from their homes. But they can expect real comfort and encouragement, notice, from the entire Godhead. Paul, in this short passage, verses 13 through 17, has mentioned the Spirit, he's mentioned the Father, and he's mentioned the Son. All three working in concert to bring about both our conversion and our sanctification and our preservation and our ultimate glorification. Can we do, is there any part of the Christian life where we don't need the Godhead? No. Is there any part of the Christian life where the Trinity, 
is not working actively in our lives. No. So then we go back to what Paul says to another church at another time in Romans. If, if God be for us, then who can be against us? Christians, we are not defeated. This world, as beautiful as it is, is not our home. And we need to start turning and looking upon our, our Savior, that old hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look on His face, and then the things of earth, they start growing strangely dim, right? And that's, that's what we do every Sunday. We remind ourselves of these truths. Because the world is, does a great job of deluding us that all that matters is what's in our bank account, what we're doing next weekend or this afternoon, the deal that we need to close, the opportunity that we need to place our kids strategically so they can flourish. It's all rooted in the here and now, and God keeps telling us there is something bigger and grander going on. He calls us to remember that He has the power to preserve us. John 3.16, let me just read some scriptures for you. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Romans 5.8, but God shows His love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's not interested in a self-service Christianity. It's all what He does. We bring nothing but sin to the table. 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And finally, 1 John 4.10, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, Paul is so certain of these believers' survival in their faith because it's rooted not in them, not in himself. I'm a great teacher. I've spent all this time with you. It was a matter of months. Paul's confidence is that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit will see it through. That's what allows him to give prayer of blessing and praise. But look at what it does. Understanding that God himself is totally invested in you ought to do these two things. Look at what he says, says in verse, at the end of verse 16. He loved us and gave us this, eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Now, Christian, I don't know what you're dealing with right now. As Royce said in the welcome this morning, we as a staff, we do pray and the elders do pray. Any prayer requests that are written down on those connect cards, every Tuesday the staff prays through them and then later that day it goes out into an email to all the elders. You are being prayed over if you submit a request. But here is the reality. No matter what you're facing, job searches, trouble in the home, difficulties in the marriage, a longing to be freed from besetting sins, decisions about career changes or life changes, grieving the loss of a loved one, 
the uncertainty of the future, loneliness, the burdens for your family who yet have yet to receive the gospel. Whatever those burdens are that you are carrying this morning, know that the Trinity is working on your behalf can actually give you eternal comfort and good hope. Here's what it is. The eternal comfort comes from the reality that what we see in verses 1 through 12, we will not be punished for our sins. We deserve it, but we will not be punished for it because Jesus took it upon himself. That word propitiation, it means he was the object of God's wrath. He stood in our place. He was a substitute. And all that he is is sufficient to resolve all of our sins. So, we look at this. Christ took upon himself the wrath meant for us. And instead of suffering, we will experience eternal comfort. Paul uses a word in, that's a Hellenistic expression that was used for life after death in this good hope. And you put these two truths together, eternal comfort and good hope, and we learn that our present circumstances in no way change or dampen what the Trinity has done for us through grace. You can't touch the 401k that God's got for us. There's no economic downturn that can mess with what he's done and what he is investing in. You start thinking about problems and pain and suffering in light of eternity and the reality of your salvation, and you start seeing these things loosen in their grip on your life, and you start having eternal comfort, and you do have a good hope. Christian, when you put these two things together, what you begin to do in reminding yourself of the eternal comfort and the good hope that comes to you through grace, you are preaching the gospel to yourself. And you ought to do this on a regular basis, if not daily. Preach the gospel to yourself. And by that, what I mean is to reflect on who we were before God saved us. It's not man-centered self-talk. It's not about how good we are, how deserving we are, how much we've done for God. You go back to the beginning and start there. Who you were before God's love. How you heard the gospel. How you understood the gospel. What God is doing for you. How the Godhead is actually working in your, in your life right now. In your family. In your circumstances. Paul's instructions help us to understand what rehearsing the gospel to oneself should look like. So, in case you need some help, write down this passage. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. And I'm going to read it for you. I hope you will dig into it later. This is what I'm talking about when I say preach the gospel to yourself. For we ourselves were once foolish, led astray, disobedient, slaves to various passions and pleasures, Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness 
and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, Paul goes on to say, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And so I'm urging you this morning to preach the gospel to yourself. And in it, you will find the work of God in your life and the comfort that that preserving grace provides. We're genuinely helped by reflecting on what the Trinity has done in the past and in the present and will do in the future. And it's all by grace, unmerited favor. We have received God's love. We are promised forgiveness of sins and deliverance from wrath, and eternal life with God. I mean, seriously, what else is there? And I believe that in every circumstance, Paul is saying these gospel truths are more than enough to comfort us, no matter what we're facing. I mean, if you die, you receive all these things. What do you lose Paul is saying there is enough here to help us to face the moment, the pain, the loss, the rejection, the attack. And it's exactly what leads us to verse 17, where Paul closes his prayer, his words of benediction, that they would comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Who is doing this? Is it people talking to one another, comforting each other? Is it us talking to ourselves? Is it Paul hearing this? Or saying this, and this brings us comfort. No, you go back to the original source, looking at verse 16. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father are the ones who are comforting you. They're the ones who are establishing you in every good work. You can't ever get away from what God is doing in your life. You can't ever escape Him. You can't outsin the grace of God. You can't, you can't be moved from Him. And Paul wants to remind these believers that rehearsing gospel truths ought to not only comfort us, but it ought to calm us when we're distressed. It ought to strengthen us eternally. It will also affect how we speak and how we act. And we'll get into that next week in chapter 3. But you remember earlier in chapter 2, verses 2 through 3, this church was so disturbed by the false teaching on Christ's return, and it had brought turmoil to their hearts. It had not only upset them internally, but it was leading now to behaviors because we are reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew eight fifteen: out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and that our hearts will lead us to actions. So here's Paul saying, I want you to know that this gospel message, this Christian worldview, isn't just a, a mental connection point, but that it actually changes our lives. We can bring peace into situations of turmoil because we have peace. You can speak truth in love, 
and it be heard like the ringing of a bell on Independence Day. Because you have love. I mean, God is so investing in us. He's placed us in communities and in schools and in places of work so that we will bring into those situations this gospel reality. And people will be changed by it. Paul has taught truth. And he's applied it in such a way that it changes people. The inner man has gone from agitated, confused, and scared to a church that is now calmed, comforted, and strengthened. And this has also affected their words and their behavior so that they can now say and do godly things even while experiencing difficult circumstances. As we're reminded in Colossians 3, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So we come to the end of chapter 2 and we're reminded that Paul sent Timothy to Thessalonica to strengthen this church. That's what prompted the first letter. In 2 Thessalonians, we see that that need for strengthening and comfort still exists. And guess what? The solution is still the same. Paul didn't go back and reinvent the wheel. He just again graciously applied the gospel to their circumstances. He pointed them to the work of God on their behalf. He's applying God's truth rightly. And so that teaches us that no matter what may happen here in these United States of America or whatever happens in this global economy that we're in, that we will benefit in mind, heart, and soul and that benefit from the gospel and the understanding of God will lead us to model Christ in front of those who reject the gospel and deny its power. And so even if we suffer for the sake of the gospel, we can be comforted that our salvation, our sanctification, our preservation are a real comfort to know that God is intimately knowing us, saving, preserving us, and empowering us to stand firm on the truth. Let us not be moved from it. Let us be a church that will devote ourselves, like the Bereans, to searching the Scriptures daily, to seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, to be giving Him praise for the works of grace that He's producing in our lives, for, to be speaking to each other words of hope and comfort, to remind one another in distress and discouragement. God is with us. This is the truth that will preserve us. Lord, we praise your name for this great saving grace that you have lavished so abundantly on us. Father, we, we need you. We need you as we need air, as we need food and water. And I pray, Lord, that that those who might be here hearing this today or who may be listening to this at some point in time online in the future, that if there is some who are far from you, you would draw them to you. And that there are some who are discomforted, who are discouraged, who are in pain, who are suffering anguish of soul, who have been so distressed by their circumstances, their fear of what they may be losing in this world, or the, the uncertainties of the future, it's causing them to act out in sinful ways. And yet they know you. I pray that your gospel would comfort them. 
and reestablish them in truth so that you would enable them to do every good word and work. Lord, this is the way and the means in which you intend to build your church. So we pray that your spirit would have rule and reign in our hearts, that your word would be held in high regard. We would devote ourselves to the teaching of the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen.